for the next four weeks, we're going to be running a little mini-series. I say we because Wes Hitsky up the back there is going to be uh, taking one of the sessions in a couple of weeks, the third session, uh, when I'm away at a conference. Um, and it's called The Minefield, uh, as it says. So today, uh, the first of these um, parts of The Minefield is about ownership. And it's, pr- it's pr- probably pretty important to for me to just mention the fact that this is obviously four parts. There's four parts to this, and we're leading somewhere. We're building towards a particular conclusion. And, you know, just listening to today and not listening to the rest would be like watching the first half an hour of a movie, which is usually when everything goes wrong, and then it, everything gets fixed at the end, and it's happily ever after, right? So I encourage you, make sure you listen to more than just today, because today's really about setting up a problem that we're then going to go and talk about the solution to that problem and the hope for that problem. Uh, so if you're not able to make every one of the sessions, and please listen online so that you can catch it all. Um, you know, to start with, I just really agree with what Matt prayed before uh, about the fact that the truth sets us free. Um, and I hope and pray, I was praying this morning uh, about th- that fact, that, uh, that the truth might set you free today, that the Holy Spirit might uh, take the words that I speak and help you to be able to see how they relate specifically for you. Uh, that there might be blind, blindness in your life, things that you are blind to um, about yourself, that maybe there'd be a little bit of truth that, that could speak into that today and help to set you a little bit more free. Uh, today, we're going to start with talking about ownership. And our first verse to get us started is from 1 Corinthians 4, 7. It says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What a good question. Isn't that a great question? I've always found this verse really, really profound, especially when you consider just how much stuff in our life we take pride in. We kind of operate sort of subconsciously as if we're responsible for things that we have absolutely no control over at all. I think the weirdest one is what we look like. You know, a lot of people in the world take a lot of pride in what they look like, as if it's somehow got something to do with them, like as if it was their choice, as if they chose out of a, a selection of genes before they were created and were able to determine what they look like. It's a weird thing that people would be uh, really proud of the fact and kind of have this kind of ownership and boast about the fact of what they look like. God uh, you know, reminds us here through Paul that everything that we have was received. And it's really easy to forget that everything that we have is a gift from God. We take pride in things all the time. And that word pride, that's the beginning of our discussion this morning because ultimately it's the beginning of the problem. It's the beginning of every problem, actually. It's the beginning of sin. C.S. Lewis calls pride the great sin. He says that all other sins are born from within pride. He calls pride the complete anti-God state of mind. I think actually when you think about that, that that measures up, that, that that's about right. That's what you, would, what you would consider to be true. Everything that we would consider to be a sin actually finds its formation, its foundation, starting in a certain place of thinking that we know better than God. That's what sin is. Sin is acting against God's created order. And even if we know that something is a sin, and we know that it's going to be bad for us and bad for other people, people the very fact that we still go ahead and do it demonstrates that at least for a split second, we thought that we knew better than God. God said, don't do it. 
it's going to hurt you, it's going to hurt other people. And we say, mm, no, I think you're wrong on that one, God. I think this is going to be worth it. And of course, it never is. It's never worth it, but for some reason, we have these little moments in our life where we say no to God. And I think that that's what C.S. Lewis means when he says that it is the anti-God state of mind. It's these little moments of our life when we say no to God. We know better than God. Consider the lie that Satan told Eve in the garden. <clears throat> When he wanted her to eat the fruit, he didn't just kind of say, come on, you know, you'll be cool. It tastes really good. And these aren't, the, these aren't the ways that he manipulated her and lied to her. What did he say? He said something that triggered her pride. He said, you will be like God. This desire to be God is at the foundation of every stupid thing that we will ever do and ever have done. In fact, it was the foundation of the stupidest thing that ever did happen, and that's Satan's rebellion against God. Uh, there's a poem called Paradise Lost, which was written in the late 1600s by John Milton. And in that, I think uh, John Milton explained this idea, this kind of stupid rebellion against God, in the most simple and yet the most profound language possible. He had Satan utter a phrase so insane... And yet it's a phrase that all of us at one time or another have found appealing. Upon being thrown out of heaven and finding himself in hell, Satan says this, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. What a stupid thing to say. <laughs> I mean, just think about the stupidity of that. It's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And it's not like hell was a nice place. And Satan himself realized that it wasn't a nice place. Just a couple of lines before, Upon being thrown out of heaven, he says, Farewell, happy fields where joy forever dwells, hailed infernal horrors. Like he knows that this is a bad thing. He knows he has seen the last of joy, and yet he is still saying it's better to be here. It's better to be here in this pain and in this torment because here at least we shall be free. That's what he says. Here we shall be free. Here I'm in charge. That's a stupid thing to say. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. But hopefully you can see that actually it's this little sentiment, this little catchphrase that acts in our minds subconsciously every time we decide to go against God's word and God's created order. God says not to lust, we give in to our lust and we create a hell on earth for ourselves. God says not to lie, we decide to lie because we think that we know better than God, we think it's going to be worth it and in doing so we create a hell on earth for ourselves. That's what sin does. Sin kind of brings, brings these little hellish experiences. And in the moment of deciding consciously to sin, we say it's better to reign in this hell that I'm about to create for myself by doing this sin than it is to bend the knee and to serve God. Sin creates these little hell and earth moments. It's never worth it. It brings torment, frustration, division, confusion, pain, anxiety, all hellish things. But for whatever reason, we have this weird tendency to agree, just for a moment, with the stupidity of Satan, that it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. In other words, the thing that really matters is that we're in charge. And that's what it all comes down to. That's what it's really all about. That's what so many things in our lives are actually really all about, who's in charge. I want you to think about pride for a moment and think about our world, the world that we live, live in, and, and think about where does pride fit in that world. Our world actually, particularly Western society, 
has developed a weird kind of love affair with pride. We don't actually think that pride's a bad thing anymore. And perhaps this might help us to understand why our society is in such a bad way. Pride, the great sin, the sin that all other sins kind of emerge from within, is actually seen as a good thing, something to be celebrated. We call it having a good self-esteem. We're told to be proud of ourselves, to take pride in our work. In fact, there's this thing called Gay Pride Week, which I just found out recently they've changed to just Pride Week. Any old pride will do as long as you're proud of something, it seems. Imagine that whole week dedicated to pride so in this pride saturated world i think it's really easy for us to look around and see pride kind of on the mega scale the mega scale of celebrity the mega scale of the way that people celebrate pride uh, their pride in kind of out loud ways and to think that we're not really that guilty of it you know little old me and little old toowoomba little old project like i'm not proud like that the way that the world is proud you know we know it's bad and so we try to be all humble whatever that means you know we kind of look down and shuffle our feet a bit and say oh no you know not me all for the glory of god all that stuff which is not i think that's not humility at all really but in order to try to see this problem in a different light then in a world that has this kind of hyper pride everywhere and which it's really easy to kind of think that we don't have a pride issue i want to suggest that we look at it in a different way that we use some different terminology I want to reimagine what pride might actually look like in our lives for us. And that, once again, it's seen in the image of Satan, and it's the desire to be free. That's what he says when he gets to hell. Here, at least, we shall be free. See, it's not just the reigning in hell that Satan wants. It's the not serving in heaven. That's what he's really all about, right? He doesn't just want to reign. In fact, reigning is really just another word for freedom, Reigning is the thing that he needs in order to be truly free. If you think about it, if you want freedom, you've got to be in charge. Because if you're not in charge, if there's someone over the top of you telling you what to do, well, then you're not really free. So the only way to be truly free in this all-encompassing, crazy, wanting-to-be-like-God kind of freedom is to be in charge. Hopefully you can see already how this idea of freedom is really quite antithetical, quite opposite to the Christian life. It doesn't really fit within Christianity. Freedom is our obsession, and it's the obsession of modern Western society. So if you want to do a bit of a self-assessment on pride, instead of looking for pride, because that's really kind of easy to excuse and it's really easy to see worse situations and kind of think that yours isn't that bad, I'd suggest looking for how much of your life you spend demanding freedom freedom from people, freedom from authority, freedom from situations. How many times, even, and we'll talk about this quite a bit next week, how many times actually you get offended by things because something has cut across something that you think that you deserve to have freedom over? Freedom is our drug. We're really scared of commitment, anything that ties us down. Although it's weird because I think a lot of us would say, no, 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 I am okay with commitment as long as I can leave whenever I want. Right? which is just saying, so you know, not commitment, right? That's not what commitment is. Commitment's not until you get over it, right? I think that this is maybe why there's a maybe RSV button in Facebook. What is that? What is the point of a maybe RSVP button? What is an RSVP? Isn't that telling someone if you're going to be there or not? How does maybe help anything? What's the point of maybe, right? Isn't maybe implied by sending an invitation out in the first place? You might be there. But actually, on Facebook, I think it's even on the city as well, which is, you know, the, the church's social network thing. There's this maybe button. And 
apparently maybe is a really appropriate response to things. There's always a lot of people that say maybe. I've been very guilty of saying maybe. And if I'm honest, I'll tell you why I say maybe. Because I don't want to be tied down. What if something better comes up? Right? Or what if it's raining? Or what if I'm comfy? You know, I'm on the couch in my trackies, watching Netflix, eating chocolate, and I just couldn't be bothered, right? If I said yes, well, then I have to go. And if I say no, I'm just being rude, particularly if the reason is that I'm sitting on my couch eating chocolate, right? But if I say maybe, well, if I don't turn up, no one's going to be surprised. I only said maybe after all. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. It's the most pointless RSVP I could imagine. Imagine that. You are getting married and you send out your 100 invites and everyone replies maybe. What, the, what do you do then? Right? You have to send another invite out without the maybe option that you shouldn't have put on in the first place. This desire of freedom that we have, it actually works itself intrinsically against God. In one sense, in a really true and beautiful sense, God loves us and loves our freedom and bought our freedom from sin on the cross. But as often happens with God, because he is infinite and so much bigger than us, there's a great divine mysterious tension at work. Because while we're free, we're not completely free. We're not free, for example, to go against our nature at least not without consequence. Our freedom, the freedom in Christ, is the freedom to be what and who we are designed to be. We're not free to sin. It's not within our nature to sin. And when we do, we go against our nature, and thus there is a natural consequence. If we were totally free in this crazy kind of satanic idea of freedom, we should be able to fly. We should be able to hold our breath forever we should be able to jump off buildings and survive we should be able to do whatever we want there are so many limitations on us that demonstrate the fact that we are not free not in this crazy do whatever you want sense we are free but it's freedom within limitations christ's freedom for us is a yoke of direction it's light he takes our burdens but it's still there this kind of crazy satanic freedom that rejects all claims from others, what it really is is a desire to redefine reality. It's a freedom that says reality I'm not in control of, therefore I must change it. I must redefine it. That's not the freedom that we have in Christ. Our freedom in Christ is to live totally in reality, which means living totally in him. Uh, in another old poem called, uh, by Dante called The Divine Comedy, he's got a book called Inferno, which is about hell. And he paints a picture of what this crazy, wanting to be like God freedom really looks like and the way that it works against logic and works against the created order. Deep down in the ninth circle of hell, there's this frozen river. And at the center of this frozen river, at the source of this river, is this great lake. And frozen in the lake from the waist down is Satan. Gigantic Satan. Frozen in there. Angry. Frustrated at his captivity. Yearning to be free. He beats his wings constantly. His giant wings. Trying to escape. Trying to break out of the ice. But his wings are massive. And the beating of these wings creates a great wind, a wind so great that it cools and freezes the lake in which he is trapped. You see the image there? It's the image of Satan's desire to be free being the thing that's capturing him in the first place. It's his desire to be free that is enslaving him. He's literally 
enslaved to his own quest for freedom. If he would just stop beating his wings, stop fighting against God, he would be released. I mean, this isn't true. This isn't what Dante is saying is actually going on, but it's an amazing image of the way that we work, struggling against God. And the struggle against God is often the thing that is enslaving us. He's literally enslaved to his quest for freedom. This quest for freedom actually has a name. It's an ancient word that isn't used at all anymore called acedia. Now, this word acedia is a word that we've really badly translated into sloth, which means laziness. It's a terrible definition because it does nothing to reflect the, the, the intensity of the meaning of the original word. Last year, I read this book called Acedia and Its Discontents, Metaphysical Boredom in an Empire of Desire. And it's from this book that a lot of these ideas come from. Have a look at the, the title there, Metaphysical Boredom in an Empire of Desire. What does that mean? Well, metaphysical means all the things that are larger than physical. It's a philosophical term that's usually used to describe questioning the idea of being and existence. So metaphysical boredom means being bored with existence, bored with being, bored with everything that there is. Bored in a large-scale sense of the word. Bored down to your core. And then it's paired with this idea that we live in an empire of desire. This empire that we live in is built around feeding our desires. If there's something you want, you can have it. I mean, it's amazing, you know, I'm only 30 years old, and the way that I've seen the world change because of the internet is ridiculous as far as how much you can have what you want when you want it now. It's changing dramatically all the time. And yet, the more that our world is geared towards this, creating this empire of desire, the more that we can have what we want, at the same time, the more bored we are with it. That's what this book is talking about. There's this strange trade that's happened. We're bored with everything, even though we can have everything. Nothing excites us. This book completely, in a big way, really did change the way that I saw myself and the way that I saw the world and other people. And I really uh, encourage you to read it. encourage you to kind of find it somewhere and, and have a read. It's incredible. And I know it's not necessarily good practice, but I want to read quite a bit of it to you uh, because it's brilliant. Uh, the words are on the screen, so you'll be able to follow along. Sloth is not laziness, although the term in time does come to mean mere inactivity. Rather, it reveals frustration and hate, disgust at place and life itself. In Acedia, the monk abhors what God has given, namely reality and the limits of order, especially the limits of one's own selfhood. Thomas Aquinas describes sloth as a sad rejection of loving, intimate union with the Creator. Since such union, according to Aquinas, is our ultimate happiness and joy, sloth very oddly rejects happiness and chooses sorrow instead. Think of Satan. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Farewell, happy fields. That's what's going on here. I will choose sorrow over joy. We are made for God, but sloth, acedia, hates our telos, our purpose. In fact, the slothful considers our purpose distasteful, even repellent, detesting the personhood that God has given. Jean-Charles Nolte describes this as a collapse into self. Acedia is a profound withdrawal into self. Action is no longer perceived as a gift of oneself, as the response to a prior love that calls us, enables our action, and makes it possible. It is seen instead as an uninhibited seeking of personal satisfaction in the fear of losing something. The desire to save one's freedom at any price reveals, in reality, a deeper enslavement to the self. There is no longer any room for an abandonment of the self 
to the other or for the joy of gift. What remains is sadness or bitterness within the one who distances himself from the community and who, being separated from others, finds himself likewise separated from God. It is a mistake to think that sloth is laziness. The slothful might very well be busy doing things. Evagrius claims, in fact, that the slothful are often in a frenzy of pointless action, now this, now that, in their disgust at the actual work given to them by God. We might anticipate the slothful to be very busy and, as the purposelessness of their lives is revealed, increasingly destructive. More than indolence, sloth rejects the burden of order, choosing instead the breezy lightness of freedom. Loving self more than relation and autonomy more than the good, in sloth one rejects the weight and density of living in an ordered creation. Modern freedom resulted when older moral horizons were uprooted, when liberation from the captivity of divine order was attained. Free, yes, but the world seems to have lost its story and we suffer a sense of malaise and emptiness. As Charles Taylor explains in A Secular Age, our freedom is disembedded from reality with a resulting terrible flatness in the everyday, the utter flatness and emptiness of the ordinary. Our freedom came at a cost, the loss of anything worth living for. And the only remainder is a centering on the self. And since the world is devoid of thickness, everything becomes a plaything, something to tame, toy with, lead about on a leash, and discard when we have drained its temporary pleasure. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a high school teacher, and when I read this book, this just, for me, just this defined high school students. Um, but I think it defined me as well. And I think, hopefully, um, we, if we're honest with ourselves, maybe there's, there's places where we can see that we have these mechanisms going on in our lives as well, regardless of our age. I mean, that, that idea that the world has lost its story and we suffer a sense of malaise and emptiness as a result of demanding freedom, this is, that's what I see in high school. In fact, you know, we've got a growing um, rate of anxiety and depression amongst people, and I think this is why. I think that that's what it's describing there, right? Like, what's the point? What's the point of anything? When you can, ha- when you can have anything you want and you can have it whenever you want it, and and people and things just serve these roles of just like entertaining you, then everything kind of becomes kind of bland, which is the opposite of what you would think, right? Everything should become really exciting, but it's not what happens. That last line, I think, is just brutal. Everything becomes a plaything, something we discard once it has been drained of its temporary pleasure. R.J. Snell, the author of the book, uses the term standing reserve. We see the world as filled with mere things that are simply waiting for us to use them and engage with them. And that means that use, therefore, becomes the thing that determines value. And a thing is only valuable if it is useful. And it is only useful if it is necessarily useful to you at the given moment. And what's far worse, this metaphysical boredom tempts us to see not only everything as a thing, but also every person as a thing. People occupy the same space as things and require the same usefulness in order to be valued. That's a little bit, I think, of the strange, the strange mechanism that goes on uh, in the pro-choice camp when it comes to abortion. You know, the, the baby is not a baby unless it's wanted. Right? It's a thing until it's wanted and then it becomes a person. 
And that's a very kind of obvious way that we can see that at work, but I think that that's actually at work with people all the time as well. Acedia tempts us to actually see people not as people, but as things, as entertainment devices, which is not surprising, I suppose, then, that it's actually now our entertainment devices through which we communicate with people in the first place. I mean, think about what an Instagram feed or a Facebook feed is. It's just all of the people in your life organised systematically with all of the entertaining things that they can tell you. Tagged in a meme here, watch a video there, here's a couple of pictures of what's going on, and you've got it when you want it, and you can put it away when you don't want it. I mean, these, these are people, right? But we have technology has kind of given us this opportunity to thing eyes, to make into things the people in our lives. And this is where pride and the quest for freedom turns into an unacknowledged subconscious obsession with ownership, which is where I want to uh, lead today. Because in a world where freedom is the most important thing, then everything that requires a certain response from us, everything to which there is a particular way we are supposed to respond, is therefore limiting our freedom. Because freedom demands that we can treat things and people however we want. And if we can't treat something however we want, well, then we're not truly free. Freedom means I should be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want. And if there's anything that restricts that, well, then I'm not truly free. So the only way that we can treat things however we want is that we own them. The only things we can treat however we want are things that we own. And therefore, working away in the backgrounds of our minds is this word, mine. And and we don't realise it, but it's everywhere in our language. C.S. Lewis talks about this in the screw tape letters. Think about the word my here. I have my shoes, my car, my house, my parents, my friends, my kids, my wife, my church, my pastor, my God. So many things that we use the word my for, so many things that we call mine. But consider how many different meanings of the word must be there in that list. I mean, surely... The word must mean something different when I use it to talk about my shoes and my parents. I chose my shoes. I didn't choose my parents and they didn't choose me. Surely when I say my house, which I'm free to demolish or paint or to rent out to someone or something like that, I must mean mine in a different way than when I say my kids or my church. My shoes I can throw out, you know, they demand very little of me. Although, in fact, I would say that even that is too much. I think that your shoes do demand something from you, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. That might sound crazy, but in week four we'll kind of of talk about that. But compared to my shoes, my kids, well, I'm sure parents in here will recognise that it's much more accurate to say that kids are the opposite of freedom. In many ways, I'm not free to treat my kids however I want, And in fact, they very much limit my freedom, which is probably why less and less young people are choosing to have any, because we're obsessed with freedom. And of course, the way I say my God surely means something different to all of these again, right? But acedia, this obsession with ownership, tempts us to see all of these mys as one. And it's the first my. It's the my we use when we talk about something small and trivial and totally within our power and control. It's like the way that we see the world through this lens is a way that we look at people and things. And we, only, and we see things and we think of them only in as much as they impact us. 
We kind of go around the world and things only matter to us when they have a direct impact upon us and, until, and the rest of the time we're not interested in them. But when they have an impact upon us, well, at that point, we start using this ownership, my. We say, this is my time. I mean, that's a crazy one, my time. You don't own time. You cannot create it or destroy it. It's a weird thing to say that you have your time. This, this is the minefield. This mechanism, seeing people as things, which we then call mine, is far more prevalent in our society and in us, or at least I'll be honest and say I know that it's far more prevalent in me than probably I recognise a lot of the time. Often it's because we call it something else. We have different words for this. Think about anger and frustration. What's really going on when you're angry or frustrated? Something didn't do what you wanted. Lust, seeing a person as a thing for your pleasure. Lying is manipulating people, which means treating them as things. It certainly doesn't mean treating them as you know, humans made in the image of God because you don't manipulate things made in the image of God. You just treat them as things. Lying is manipulating people to get a thing that you want. Laziness is seeing people as things not worth serving and loving, not worth your time. And being controlling is seeing people as things that should do what you want them to do. Hopefully this makes sense. This is, uh, might be a bit of a brutal place to finish, but this is basically we're going to finish part one, right? I told you this is the first half hour of the movie, right? So this is not necessarily good news. But the intention today was to set up an idea that we're going to flesh out over the next couple of weeks. And this idea is that at the heart of so many of our issues, so many of our disagreements, our division amongst ourselves, our own internal discord within ourselves, our sin is this underlying mechanism of an obsession with ownership that we say my to things that we have no right to say my over. But I do want to end, you know, a little bit up if we can. And it's not all bad news, right? The strange thing for us is that this weird desire for freedom, this desire to make, to, to own all things and to be our own gods, as the reading from Acedia explained, is actually the opposite of what makes us truly happy. You know, that's not how to be happy. Think about, once again, Satan. Satan said, farewell happy fields with joy forever rolls. Hail infernal horrors. Here at least we shall be free. It's, it doesn't end in happiness. We're designed for communion with God and, for, and co- for communion with other people. And anything that goes against our design is not going to bring us true joy and peace. So it's part of the crazy foolishness of humanity that goes back again and again to those mud puddles of titillation and distraction that will eventually lead to boredom and despair when the ocean of pure joy is found in God and in giving yourself, not seeing things as yours. And Jesus knew this, and he said as much. He talked about ownership all the time. In fact, he made the connection that I think Acedia makes between ownership and anxiety. If you think that you have a right to call things yours, if you think that you have a sense of control over stuff, man, you're going to be anxious because there's not many things that you have control over, right? Jesus makes this really clear uh, in Luke 12, 22, when he's talking to his disciples. He says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? 
Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. C.S. Lewis says it like this. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. So that's, that's what I wanted to set up today. That's where we'll end. And I encourage you, and I, and I, and I prayed this morning that, that it would be the case, that there would be truth spoken and that there would be elements of truth that could impact you and help to set you free. We all have little bits of this at work in us. We're all in little ways enslaved to our own craziness. Uh, and, and I think that this is a lot of what it is, that it comes down to this desire for control and it comes down to this way that we see everything as being uh, ours. We say mine over things. Next week in particular, we're going to focus on the way that this comes out in relationships, in the way that we see people. Uh, and then after that, Wes is going to talk about some very kind of specific examples, things that he's seen in the drug rehab um, in all of his time working there about how this plays out. And then the last week, week four, is, is when we'll, we'll have the solution. And the solution, we shouldn't be surprised. The solution is love. I mean, what's the opposite of owning things and taking things and using things? It's loving people giving yourself as a gift. So that's where we're headed. We might just pray in closing now. <clears throat> God, thank you for your truth and thank you that the truth does set us free. And I pray for everyone here that uh, over this week that you would be helping us to kind of refocus this lens that we have on the world, that areas of the way that we see things as our own and not as gifts from you, that we see people as things to use and discard um, when temporary pleasure is drained. I just pray that you would help us to see this and to be aware of it so that we can change, so that we can become more like you. Because in being more like you, in rejecting the stupidity of this obsession with freedom, we'll be more truly human. And in being more truly human, we will have joy and peace. So I pray this over everyone for this coming week. Amen.